Are we ready to do this? Let's we're do it. As ready as we're going to be. Hey, welcome back. It's time yet again for the Halftime Report. And I was walking down the street and I found the most crazy left-wing uh, rhino Republican I could find and, and Rodney. No, just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> no one ever said that. Actually, they do say that. There's that one group that tried to, to, oh, to yeah. declare that you're not really conservative, which is stupid. It was laughable. Yeah, Very they, laughable. It, they, uh, they tried to point out a vote which was unanimous, by the way, that indicated I was somehow to the left of other legislators. Ridiculous. Bizarre argument. Uh, absolutely but, hey, ridiculous. You know. But, you know, good on them for trying. I mean, <laughs> you know, points for creativity. How about that? Yeah. No, as many of you who are watching know, uh, Ron is, is one of the most conservative um, uh, members of the legislature, not just the House of Representatives, but the legislature. And uh, so we're pr proud to have him here. Great ally. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the time. I know it's a lot when you've got so much stuff going on. Here is seven o'clock at night for crying out loud. <laughs> but I wanted, you know, we'd like to take time to, to visit some really complicated issues. Today was one of those days that was a complicated issue, or I should say yeah. it's not really a complicated issue. It's just an issue made complicated by the powers that be. The powers that be uh, running a broken process that hasn't worked for the people for a long time. And uh, good news is there's more and more legislators there who, who see the problems with the process and are willing to fix it. Elections matter a lot. And I'm looking forward to May because if we uh, elect enough legislators who are willing to do the work for the people and honor their, their oath to uphold the constitutions, we'll have a lot better results for Idaho. Most definitely. Um, so let's talk about the grocery tax and, and you're on that during this legislative session and the numerous attempts now, there's been, I think, three attempts to, to get uh, the grocery tax included in the discussion. Sure. Um, but, but all this originates, let, let, let's, let's start from the start, which is you have an idea. Your idea exactly. is just to uh, get to, to stop taxing groceries. And there's a public policy reason. There's a moral reason. Mm -hmm. And yet you can't even get your bill introduced. Why, why is that? Yep. And it's did, did I characterize that correct? You I, cannot get your bill introduced. That's true. And it's it is this broken process I talk about. And uh the I call it a broken process because I've researched it. I've looked into the rules. I've looked in, you know, the our legislature runs on Mason's rules of parliamentary procedure. And I've read those rules and, and looked at how the process is supposed to work. And uh, unfortunately, the traditions in the Idaho legislature have, have risen to a level where they're trumping both Mason's rules and our, our House rules. And for some reason, those are more well-respected than uh, really the will of the people and the, the proper process. And so, I don't know, to, to give it a longer answer, I bring my bill to the committee chair. The committee chair typically says, oh, I don't know if it's a good idea or not. Let's have an introductory hearing and let the committee decide. That's the way it's supposed to work. But the way it's working in Idaho now is, is that uh, somebody doesn't want the bill heard, whether it's the committee chair or leadership or whoever has the committee chairs here. And he says, uh, nope, we're not going to consider it. And it was that flatly stated. No, we'll not, we won't consider this bill. So it wasn't a gosh, interesting. We'll leave that for the committee for the committee to decide. We'll let, let them at least consider introducing it. No. Um, you, you, you couldn't even go and get it introduced and then go back to the committee chair and say, okay, can I get a hearing on my bill? Not even that. And uh, when I got to the legislature eight years ago, it was uh, painted as an arena of ideas to me by, by scott bedke by scott bedke and uh what i find out it's it's an arena of of 
select ideas because I could not even garner a discussion with the committee chair. He was uh, so against it. He just simply said, and he wouldn't hear it and uh, really wasn't willing to discuss it. But what was interesting is, and it's Chairman Steve Harris. And uh, what was interesting about it is I said, you know, if you, you know, you're refusing to do this. And he, he indicated that, well, yeah. And I said, well, um, I have to tell people why they're not getting the legislation that, that I've been working on and promising. And so I'm going to have to tell them about what's going on. And, and he, he, he didn't like that idea, but the only discussion I was able to get out of him was that, um, well, if you're going to take this responsibility that, that you're, you're granting yourself veto power, you also ought to accept the accountability. And so he actually agreed to that. He goes, well, I guess you're right. And so I'm telling the world, Chairman Steve Harris, has taken upon himself to control the process, at least with regard to grocery tax repeal. And so that's why it has not gotten the, the straightforward hearing in Revin tax. And by the way, it is a tax bill. So by rule, they all have to start in that committee. That is the only chairman that I can take that bill to. So when he is, it's interesting because Steve also at one point voted for repealing the grocery tax. He joined the lawsuit, your lawsuit, yeah. uh, that went to the, to the state Supreme Court to overturn the governor's veto. Excellent. Yeah, he did. So what's, what's changed? Uh, it would be nice to have that discussion. I asked the exact same question, and he just said, uh, I've, I've come to understand it's bad policy. But then asking what he means by that, we don't even get to that discussion. I've come it. to understand and it's he, bad policy. Yeah, and and I, he might have even said horrible policy. But uh, you know what I think horrible policy is? is having a legislative system where you can't uh, even discuss certain ideas. But you're right. Back in 2017, it passed by a supermajority out of the House, by a supermajority out of the Senate, went to the governor's desk, and this, and then the the legislature adjourned and the governor let it sit on his desk and let it sit on his desk. And on the 11th day, he signed it. That sounded biblical. On the 11th day, he, the 11th no, day. The 11th day he vetoed it. <laughs> he I'm sorry. It. Yeah. And, uh, but the constitution's clear that he has 10 days. Right. And, uh, so we, we sued, went to the Supreme court, the Supreme court, um, said, yeah, technically you're right, but we're going to give him a pass this time because it looked like there might've been a confusion on some technicality, but, uh, weird how that works. It is. Yeah. So the, the Jim Rice was in here the other day, Jim Rice being the chairman of the Senate tax committee, of course, sure. you know that I'm telling them that in case yeah. they don't know. And, and Jim uh, said, well, you know, part of the problem with the grocery tax is that the mood in the house has changed the how there's no support for repealing the grocery tax in the house. And I thought that was really interesting. I don't know where he gets that idea. Do you agree with him? Well, if, if he's right, there's one sure way to find out. And you that's just put it. it up for a vote. I don't know how he is able to to divine the the preferences of all the House members without actually having a vote on it. But uh, it's interesting, even on a procedural vote, which leadership locks down, um, we had uh, 27 individuals willing to to vote with us and and want to have grocery tax repeal. Now, imagine if leadership wasn't trying to lock down its chairman and vice chairs, what kind of support we'd get for it. I think it would be flipped. I think we'd be back over 20, two thirds of the house supporting it. And uh, by the way, that would reflect the will of Idaho too, because Idahoans are, um, are all the polls show is that they largely um, are favorable to grocery tax repeal. 
it's interesting that with the with the vote today, which was to send it to to general orders, I thought that that was a no brainer. I mean, especially given that a it's twenty dollars, yeah. and b it's boy, there's a lot of racket going on upstairs, isn't there? Yeah, it sounds like there's a, a dog pile going it's a, there's, on. There's, it's, it's a mess. Anyway, okay. <laughs> ignore that. Um, the, the, the $20 that we're going to get in two years. Yeah. And that just just seemed to me that I, how, how can you argue anything but that this is the right move? Oh, fascinating. It's, yeah, the, the bill that we were considering, and um, it's hard to attribute motives, but I'll say this, that uh, they're offering a a increase in the grocery tax credit by $20 and it doesn't take effect until the 2023 tax year, which means it's not till April of 2024 that you realize any of this. And it's merely a tax credit on your income taxes. They, they are, here's, I think that they are thinking that because it's a grocery tax credit, they're going to claim that, look, they did do things for grocery tax relief. The only thing that makes it grocery is the fact that that's the word used in the income tax code about right. it. And so it's not really anything to do with groceries. They just it's, call it that. It's distant from it. It's not correlated with your spending on groceries. It's just a tax credit. And by the way, the grocery tax repeal that we are, that we are advancing, that we are promoting, is, uh, doesn't even touch that income tax credit. So it doesn't take it away. It doesn't increase it or decrease it. And so for them to to uh, talk about how removing that would make the grocery tax repeal smaller is just a red herring and it's really kind of disingenuous for them to suggest that we do anything. Why is it the policy that, that has surfaced that that's the solution? Um, I, I think it's giving them cover. I think they're feeling the heat from Idahoans because I get hundreds of emails saying that you should repeal the grocery tax. And I know that they are too. And so, but they've already, uh, you know, um, burn through the governor's powder on doing his income tax cut. And for some reason, they don't want to do a grocery tax cut for the people because I think they want to spend it up. There's lots of agencies wanting to spend up the surplus. And so uh, a $20 tax credit is a way for them to say that they, they address grocery tax relief and without actually doing it, they're putting it off for two years. You look at inflation and, and is $20 going to even even come close to matching the amount of, of inflationary increase that you're feeling with food prices and taxes. It's, it's breadcrumbs. Truly. And, and I say, we, we free the food, we can do it. We have a huge budget surplus. It belongs to the taxpayers first and that's where it ought to go first. It almost seems to me that, I mean, I, first of all, I, I was really surprised by how fast the, the, tax policy was cemented this session. The governor comes out of the state of the state address. He says $600 million. Um, two days later, the bill's printed in revenue tax. The following Monday, the bill is heard in committee and it's yeah. out to the floor and then it passes the house and has cleared the Senate governor signed it. Um, but it seemed to displace larger tax policy questions that maybe more than one person might've had an idea mm -hmm. towards uh, something better. Yeah. Permission to speak, speak frankly here, Mr. Hoffman, <laughs> <laughs> just between you and me just and, and, and uh, million, thousands, sure. millions of viewers millions, that you have out there. Millions. Okay. Um, I think there's two reasons that they did. They rushed through the income tax this year. First one is um, I've often said that uh, a bill doesn't have to pass to have an impact. And we pushed grocery tax repeal hard last year. 
and be, and uh, last the fight was grocery tax um, repeal versus income tax cuts. And you know what they did? They finally hammered together an income tax cut at the end of the year. And I think that that income tax cut was a lot higher than they wanted it to be because they had to deter the grocery tax repeal. So they made it 400 million instead of the 200 million that they were originally shooting for. I think that's bled over to this year in that they wanted to end the conversation sooner for two reasons. Number one, if they got the income tax cut through, then they could just say, look, we already did the uh, Idaho's greatest tax cut in history, right. which was a which was just a fraction of Idaho's biggest surplus in history that should go back to taxpayers. Right. So they were trying to deter the conversation so they didn't have to be pressured to do more. And I think the second reason is it's an election year. And uh, last year when the governor and uh, uh, sent out the income tax rebates, I don't know if you noticed this Idaho, but on the little voucher there with your check was a it's a little statement from your governor telling you how great he is, how great Idaho is, and how he's committed to cutting your taxes. And that was on your check. It's an election year. Uh, I bet he's going to put a similar statement on the check. And so he wanted to have this done early so that the checks could come out before the May election. You're saying the rebate is in itself a campaign tactic. You look at the statement on there, gosh, it looks very campaigny. And uh, I asked the tax commission today, I said, are you going to put a statement like that on there again? in an election year and I got no answer. Yeah, um, the, other, the other thing about that 600 billion is that people don't know the tale. So they go, oh, I, we, we like the sound of that $600 million. Mm -hmm. In previous years, the entire surplus has been used to give tax relief. This time it's less than a third of the surplus that's being designated for tax relief, which is true, but, but, but no one really knows that. Yeah. And, and I kind of wonder if the, it, that's also a gimmick. So in other words, you get to say, we cut your taxes and, oh, we bought all these things. I think there's a bill that was hanging on the third reading calendar that got sent back to committee to create a fund to fund, to give money to um, uh, confined animal feeding operations. And then you've got yeah. the 400, and, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the $1 billion commitment over the course of 10 years of uh, House Bill 443, the uh, teacher um, insurance mm -hmm. bill that you voted against and a few others voted sure against. Did. Yeah. But you've got all these different pockets of money that are being distributed to groups, to various special interest groups. Yeah. But we get to say, oh, we cut your taxes at the same time. That's right. And they get to say, oh, it's the biggest tax cut in history. Well, they, they've spread it over a few years. They're using the tax relief fund, which can only go to tax relief. And so it was going to be there anyway. And so really the the change that they were making is not as great as it sounds, but it's meant to say, we're done with the tax relief uh, conversation. Well, they may be done with it, but Idaho isn't done with it. Uh, a large group of legislators in the House and Senate aren't done with it, and we're gonna keep working to, to get it done. So do you think, is, is grocery tax repeal still possible this legislative session? Absolutely. You know, as long as, as, long as the legislature hasn't adjourned, um, we've, seen, we've seen magic happen to bills on the last day of a legislative session. And uh, um, if enough people uh, get out there and put pressure on their legislators and put pressure on leadership, remember some members of leadership are running for office. That, uh, oh, is that, that true? Yeah, that, that magic can happen again <laughs> uh, for something that is important to Idahoans. I'm thinking about the forgotten man and woman. I'm thinking about the taxpayer first. The agencies are lining up at our budget committee telling us all sorts of things they want. They want 
helicopters. That's Other, actually a true request. They want a heli ISP wants a helicopter. They want a helicopter and a hangar to put it in and two pilots and two mechanics to, to maintain it. Um, Department of Land wants five drones, two drone pilots and a truck to drive those drones around. Um, it's just bizarre, the kind of things. It, it's, it goes from the, the reasonable to the bizarre, to the overspending, to just things that you wouldn't think of. And I think the agencies wouldn't think of unless they all saw that $1.9 billion surplus sitting there. A couple more things on the grocery tax and then we'll go to, sure. there's just so much stuff. Yeah. Um, your bill, so you you couldn't get this this the, oh, the chairman yeah. to get uh, to introduce your bill. So you did what a lot of folks do, which is they they run a personal bill, which means you just put your name on it. It gets a bill number. Mm -hmm. Used to be, back in the day before you were a legislator, the bill would get assigned to the Germain Committee, mm -hmm. even though it was a personal bill. And so we, we would go back to the Revenue and Taxation Committee, correct. where Harris is the chair, and he would have the bill with a bill number and it would be in his committee's charge. And really the rules say that it's not up to the committee chair to hold it or advance it. The rules say that the chair is supposed to facilitate the work of the committee. Right. The bill doesn't belong to him. It's, no. It belongs to the committee. His job is to set an agenda, mm -hmm. to facilitate the meeting. Theoretically, any member of the committee could say, hey, there's this bill in our committee. I move that we put it on the agenda. Yeah. And but in, but you're right. The the uh, process has changed. Um, the bill now gets voted to Ways and Means, which is the Speaker's Committee. Speaker's Committee. It is uh, the composition of that committee is House leadership. You look at it. You know, you look who's on the committee. It's the majority leader, the assistant majority leader. It's it's the caucus chair. You know, those are the ones on the committee, and so they do the will of leadership on that because. They are leadership and uh, they do the will of the speaker. And so the Ways and Means Committee is, um, you know, we joke about it, it, is where good bills go to die because that has been the, the modern tradition there is that uh, leadership sends it there and it doesn't move. But, there's, but that's not in the rules and it's not like it's been doing, it's not like it's been that, like that forever. It's, that's it's right. only I mean, very recently. That's right. And it is the speaker's prerogative to direct them to committees and he can direct them to ways and means. This speaker has directed more to ways and means than, than other speakers. You know, there's definitely an upward trend in ways and means uh, experience with, with these personal bills. However, it is also within the rules that any bill that has a committee beyond five days after 20 days into the session, you can call it to the floor. Which you tried to do the other day. Well, I, I did. I called it to the floor on Tuesday. Um, the, that rule also provides that that committee chairman can also ask the, ask the floor for more time for the committee to do it, and, which the, the chairman dutifully did. The speaker looked at the chairman, the chairman stood up, Chairman Amador, and, and moved to keep it in committee and have more time. And so that was a procedural vote. It's one where if, if you're a committee chair or vice chair, the leadership wants you to vote with them. And a lot of them did. Do you think that, that's a, that that was a vote on the grocery tax? I, I think it represents that. I tried to make it very clear that this might be the House's only opportunity to vote for grocery tax repeal. And would you say the vote today was a vote on the grocery tax? I think so, too. If you look at the debate, a lot of the debate was on grocery tax repeal. The Democrats were talking about grocery tax repeal. The, 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 the ones in favor of the motion to send it to amending orders and add grocery tax, they were arguing that way. And I think those are good indicators of of but look at the totals on the votes 
you go, oh, look, the House doesn't want grocery tax repeal. No, they didn't want that procedure for doing grocery tax repeal. A lot of people who voted for it want grocery tax repeal, but then there's some who voted against it because they are following the leadership's directives on procedure. It's really interesting. I think Carolyn Troy, at least a couple of days ago on the motion to uh, to um, call the bill to the floor, yeah. um, said, oh, well, you know, th these are the, the we're operating under the rules and, and uh, you're trying to uh, mm -hmm. you know, misuse or, or I guess well, uh, that's but that's not true. I mean, yeah. you're, you're, these are the rules. The rules allow for you to call a bill at a committee. The bill, the, the rules allow for the chairman of the committee to ask, ask the committee to be excused from reporting. Yeah, there's no ambigu ambiguity there either. You can read the rules and the rule six says that uh, bills should should come out of committee. Uh, bills should, you know, that all bills introduced should come out of committee after 20 days. Well, personal bills are all submitted before 20 days, and so they don't have to be introduced through a committee necessarily. That's what a personal bill process is, is when the committee process is stifling action, personal bills allow another avenue. And so Rule 17 says that any bill in any committee can be called to the floor if the committee hasn't acted on it in five days. And so we're just using the procedures in the rules that, uh, that uh, she was stating and, and uh, perfectly within the rules. I would like to see uh, a little breaking of the tradition of where everyone is supposed to, or well, when leadership speaks that uh, a bunch of the lap dogs just jump up and do what the leadership wants. Lap dogs, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a term. It, it's a term and uh, unfortunately, you know, I hear conversation, I people talk to me and they say, gosh, you know, I agree with you on grocery tax repeal, but, I just can't go against leadership on this because they'll give a variety of reasons. I got these other bills and other committees I'm working on. I don't want to put those at risk. Um, I'm a committee chair and, and uh, you know, that's, that's part of the way things work as committee chair. You can't go against leadership. These are things I'm told, but are never, uh, never stated on the floor for sure. And so you look at the vote and you go, why can't we get grocery tax repeal? It's because they blocked down the process. Why do your colleagues put up with something like that? Because my, my understanding of the legislature, and this is not my first legislative session, mm -hmm. is that um, you all have the same power. Everybody has the same amount of power within the rules. Um, even the speaker's power is limited. He, sure. he, he can only do what he has dispensation from a majority or sometimes a supermajority of the body to do. Same thing for the majority leader. Same thing for committee chairs. Yeah. So, but why? Why would legislators put up with it? You got forty-five, fifty thousand people in your district. You represent the same number as other members, including the speaker, including the majority leader. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. If you get a majority or sometimes a supermajority vote to have something happen, by will be done. Yeah. And yet, it seems as if we've re we've sort of accepted the notion that this is an oligarchy and so yeah i think some have accepted that notion i haven't i'm fighting against it all the time and so working within the rules using parliamentary procedure to push back against the traditions that have gotten to this point where where the will of the people is stifled and the will of the the big special interests and and whatever leadership wants to cater to is 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 honored more and so we need to reverse that process and put it back in the hands of the people problem i think you have um sometimes you have legislators who who want to move up 
They want the committee chairs. They want the committee vice chairs. They want, they're more worried about their next bill being passed than about the bigger picture of the process changing so that all good bills can be considered. And um, I'll tell you, I, I heard a quote from the speaker from, uh, talking to someone where he said, they don't want to pass, um, they don't want to give conservatives in the House victories because those will be used to defeat incumbents in the next election. Now, really? Does, Somebody yeah, actually said that? Yeah, the speaker said the that. The speaker said that. Yeah. Now, does that sound like somebody who was working for the people or working for the next election? In what context did he say that? Uh, when being asked about uh, about why so many bills are being held, so many personal bills are being submitted. Um, this year is kind of extraordinary. There's there's probably about 20 personal bills being held in Ways and Means. Mm. It's just an estimate. It might be a little higher, a little lower. But, but uh, that's a lot of bills that legislators have worked on. And like I mentioned on the floor, every bill I, I generate and, and propose is an earnest attempt to change Idaho law. And I would think the same for other legislators. So we have these bills out there, which are which uh, have honest intentions of legislators to change the law, but they just don't even get heard. So to give the devil its due, mm -hmm. reducing the income tax from 6.5 to 6 is a good thing. Um, is that just political theater? The reason I asked, I asked Jim, Jim Rice this the other day as well, yeah. because I find it rather extraordinary because I love tax policy. Sure. And so understanding tax policy when, when, Income tax was first put in place in Idaho in 1931, which was then called the Property Tax Relief Act. <laughs> well, well done, well done, legislature. Yeah. Almost 90 years later, <laughs> uh, or more than 90 years later, uh, but but the top rate at that time was four percent, and it applied to. So this is a liberal Democrat Idaho legislature, 1931. Yeah, their top rate was was four percent, and it applied to people making twenty thousand dollars and above. That's right. Which I think is you're you're the economist, so you'll tell me if I'm wrong about this. Something in the order of three hundred and sixty thousand dollars in today's dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So most people paid the other rate, which was one percent. Why should Idahoans get excited about yay six percent when from from Republican conservative supposedly conservative Republicans? I guess they'll tell you that they are. Yeah. When the liberal Democrats could only dream up. 1% for most Idahoans and 4% and for the so-called rich. Well, why should Idahoans put up with this? Why should we expect otherwise? The composition of the House is 58 Republicans, 12 Democrats. The composition of the Senate is 28 Republicans, 7 Democrats. Um, that doesn't mean we have 58 conservatives and 12 liberals or 28 conservatives and 7 liberals. The, the battles that go on in the House and the Senate are not between the R's and the D's. It's between those who are working for liberty and working for the people and those other R's who are working for special interests and uh, in other circles have been called rhinos or Republicans in name only or establishment uh, type of Republicans. Um, I think those that are, are, are fighting for this kind of tax relief and are fighting for, for protecting people's rights to their medical decisions and privacy and who are fighting for election integrity all they're doing is following the Republican platform and the Constitution. And uh, why is that so hard? It's well, it's hard because I think uh, special interests have undue influence in pretty much all legislatures and certainly in Idaho. We think that because Idaho is a red state, we're somehow immune to those 
those pressures of the swamp of DC. Well, there's a swamp in Idaho policy in Idaho politics too. There's undue influence of, of uh, big special interests like IACI, Idaho Association of Commerce and Industry, and uh, the big companies associated with them and the other big PACs associated with them too. Blue Cross and Blue Shield is, is part of that. Uh, you have the Idaho, Idaho Realtors Association, which is interesting. Realtors in my local district, they're supportive of me, mm-hmm. but their association at the state level is very antagonistic towards conservative legislators. The, uh, the Idaho um, Conservation League you know, that does the Sportsman Caucus, it sounds like it would be conservative, but they spend a lot of money against uh, conservative candidates. So the special interests are there and they have an undue influence on Idaho politics. But I feel a change in the tide this year, especially after Trump lost and people are skeptical of that election. And after the Biden administration has essentially wrecked a strong economy wrecked a lot of individual rights and uh, just just tread on all the things that we hold dear that I think that that liberty is making a resurgence here. You know, it's kind of like every time a Democrat administration is there, gun sales and ammo sales go up, you know, because people feel threatened in their rights to hold those. Well, this administration and and uh, what's been going on with with lock with our governor and lockdowns and mask mandates and and uh, extended emergency orders. I think liberty is waking up. There's a lot more people who are interested in in helping out campaigns, in running for office, and donating. There's a there's a resurgence here, resurgence here, and I'm excited for for these primary elections. I think there's going to be some big surprises across the state. Do you think that um, people understand that this is not just a Washington D.C. problem? It's really interesting because when I when I travel yeah. around the state and I talk to folks, and they all a lot of folks, I mean. For years, it's always been this way. They want to talk about Obama. They want to talk about Biden. They want to talk about Nancy Pelosi. And I even went to a, um, I was at an event in, in Coeur d'Alene once. So uh-huh. these are people who are, are really good. They're pure and they pay attention to what's going on. They have a meeting every morning, every Friday morning at 7 a.m. Yeah. And one guy comes up to me, and this is 12 years ago, and he says, tell me what you think of Raul Labrador. Raul just got elected to Congress. I said, oh, Raul's a great guy. I enjoy working with Raul. I've known him for a lot of years. And I said, let me ask you a question. What do you think of your three local le- legislators? Yeah. Deer and headlights look and, mm-hmm. you know, people don't know their legislators. We hear from some of your colleagues that they understand that, yeah. that there are people who presume that they've gone off to Congress and they're, you know, beating yeah. down Nancy Pelosi's door and somehow striking a blow for liberty that way. Is that still the case? Or do you think people now know that there's this other thing in Boise called the legislature where really important decisions are being made. Yeah, I, I, it's a great question. I think there is definitely an awakening going on and, and people are, are um, kind of waking up to their awful state, if you will, <laughs> and uh, realizing that uh, DC problems are, are there. And, and I, I think there's a frustration to a large extent. We've, we've lost our, our federal government. It's off the rails. You know, what can, what can our four, you know, our, our two congressmen and two senators do in D.C. when they're, you know, four vo- voices amongst 535. But if we're going to save this union and save this country and save our Constitution, it's up to the states to step up. Do you think your your colleagues know the big side? I mean, mm-hmm. for example, there's a world of difference between your voting record and, say, mm-hmm. Scott Bedke or Fred Wood. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, there's a, You're farther apart than 
Scott Bedke and um, Alana Rebell. Who's a Democrat. Who's a yeah. Democrat. I mean, True. so so is that a function? Because it's, I, I've kind of been, been analyzing and those Scott for a lot of years. And if I had a problem with water rights, I, you know, Scott Bedke certainly knows water rights. He's passionate about them. Sure. But does he understand and do your colleagues understand the the danger that the nation faces right now that that you really need patriots and constitutional conservatives folks who stand up for liberty yeah when i got to the legislature there was there was two or three solid conservative votes that we'd get on any issue you know myself representative scott vito barbieri solid conservative you know once in a while maybe a few more and uh over the years um there's been an increase in the number of legislators who who honor their constitutional oaths, who, who recognize that liberty is at risk and we need to push back against the federal government instead of just ask them for more all the time. And so now on key votes, like we saw today, trying to get that bill to general orders, trying to get the tax relief Idahoans want, we see more like 26 and 27 votes. And I think it's got leadership nervous and the establishment nervous. And, and, uh, and I hope they are nervous. And I hope Idahoans realize that their efforts can can make the difference letting their legislators know that they're going to make an election issue out of this letting leadership know that this is an election issue and and in may on may 17th we're going to remember these these battles and who was fighting for the people and who was fighting for special interests you know in virginia recently the the governor changed the governorship changed hands from the democrat to the republican and that was virginia and the key issues there were whether parents got to make their education decisions versus the public education system, um, whether the federal government was going to run Virginia or the state of Virginia was going to run Virginia or the people of Virginia. And uh, those typically have been national issues, but now they're becoming state issues. We see the same battles in Idaho. People are frustrated by um, election disintegrity. They're, they're frustrated by the public education system where we keep dumping more money into a broken system and it's getting taken over by the liberal voices who are, who are indoctrinating our kids against traditional family values. And so we, we feel our education is slipping. And, and I think we have good teachers in Idaho. You know, the teachers in my district are just stellar. Problem is they're stuck in a system that doesn't reward their excellence. And so um, they're stuck with a common core curriculum. They're stuck with a system that doesn't reward them for going above and beyond. And, and uh, so we dump more and more money into an education system. We're getting worse and worse results. And I, and I mean that academically. You look at reading and science scores and they go down. And so these national issues about um, kind of, uh, you know, critical race theory or indoctrination of kids or, or federal takeover are, be, are hitting home now. And I think people are waking up to it and, and we're gonna, going to do our best to make that uh, part of the campaign season and let people know that their, their schools, um, we can improve the school um, outcomes by letting parents make more decisions or have more power over the education their kids get. It's a good segue to your other role in the legislature, you know, yeah. being on the, on the budget committee and sure. one of, I suppose, just two conservatives on a 20 member panel. Yeah, I kind of joke around with my colleague there that it's, it's not the Joint Finance and Appropriations Committee. It's the 18 I's and two nays committee. <laughs> it truly yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. It truly is. And, and, you know, there used to be a lot more substantive debate. I don't even remember recently 
um, a really close vote. Yeah, I, I can remember a, a series of tie votes on education, on health and welfare. Mm -hmm. um, now it's it's almost a rubber stamp for it seems like the governor's budget agenda. Yeah, and uh, the committee is composed of uh, um, ten senators, ten House members, each chosen by the leadership of the House and Senate. So. Um, I, I think that uh, they, they choose members that are going to achieve their budget goals. Um, it's kind of funny. I, I think, I'll just speculate here. We're friends. I'll speculate. I, I think I was put on JFAC committee because the speaker did not want me on the revenue and taxation committee. That was my theory too. Yeah, because he knew that I was going to be pushing for grocery tax repeal. And so uh, put me on JFAC committee and I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, great. That, the, J, the budget committee it needs conservatives on it. So I think they made the mistake by putting two conservatives on there. So myself now, now and you have somebody who can make, who can, yeah, we can a make a motion and second a motion and, and really point out where that there are other options besides spending it all up. So you and Priscilla have been basically the only people on the committee who have been mm -hmm. fighting against um, the, the, the approach that our higher education system, even the K-12 system have been taking in terms of indoctrination, social justice. And I want to talk about, I want to, I want sure. to hone in on this. So sure. let's start with Marlene Trump. Marlene Trump comes in, the president of Boise State, and she says, uh, she gives her, her pitch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, before I get to that, though, I actually need to back up. Yeah. People need to understand the public doesn't get to participate in JFAC. They don't get there's, to testify. There's no, there's no, okay, we've heard the pre from the presidents of Boise State and U of I. Now let's hear from, you know, Joe Public. Yeah, it's... It, what, what is your opinion on on the status of the, the spending request? We, I was stunned when I found out that the public is not allowed to testify on budgets. I, I don't know. I don't know how we can spend uh, $6 billion of their dollars this year and not, not never get a asked, peep out of the public. Never asked them. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. And it was sort of offensive just to me because, of course, during the process of hearing from the colleges and universities, all they did was beat up on the Freedom Foundation and yeah. the conclusions that we drew last year on what's happening on our college university campus. But no one gave us a chance to get up there and say, well, you know, Marlene says this and Scott Green says this. How do you respond? They've never asked. We don't get a chance to do that. Putting all that aside. Yeah. Um, so Marlene gets up there. She gives her speech. And then you asked the question, okay, uh, President Trump, you were asked to cut uh, $1.5 million from social justice spending at the university. And mm -hmm. her answer was? Was uh, a non-answer. Basically, yeah, you're right. I asked her, I said, you know, you were directed to get social justice spending reduced by 1.5 billion because it's wasteful. It's not going towards excellence in education. It's going towards activism, promotion of activism uh, with a particular liberal agenda. And uh, she said, well, we are, our, our, our views and our, and our programs are evolving. They're evolving. Yep, and, evolving. and that was her word. That was the word. And I, and I was I shaking my head going, okay, the question was, what have you cut? And again, second answer, we're evolving, we're, we're considering everything, we're looking at things, you know, very political answer. And so I asked the third time, but I never did get an answer of anything that was cut. In fact, if you, if you look at their, their budget and their programs, 
if anything, they're doubling down. They're just thumbing their nose at the budget committee saying, hey, you know, you, you, you made your statement, but uh, we're powering on. So the next day, um, uh, Kevin Satterley, the president at ISU came in, his response was a little bit different, indicating that student fees are going to pay for the social justice stuff instead of the general fund. Yeah, I guess to, to summarize, did I catch that correctly? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he's going to kind of look at a different source of funding and still be sensitive to to uh, students needs and, and uh, in my my view a little bit of coded language there of we're still going to do what we need to do but uh nothing's changed yeah, either nothing's changed okay so now that my favorite one yeah university of idaho uh, uh -huh. scott green comes in and his approach is they hired a law firm i don't know how much they spent i did find out that and i i wasn't mm -hmm. of interest to me it could, if it's ninety thousand dollars nine hundred thousand dollars still a waste of money whatever yeah <laughs> but he so you're Budget requirement takes takes effect on July one. Says cut two and a half million dollars up. Yeah, Scott Green waits until September to sign a contract with a law firm, which is interesting because it's not really independent, even though they call it that. Yeah, to review our report from February, claiming that there's all the social justice activity taking place on campus. How did you? How did that? Did that solve the problem? Did it make you feel better? Did it? Did it? Did it check the box and well, make it all go away? But tell me, tell <laughs> did me. it make it go? I don't think it went away at all. It, it, it surprises me that a university is so out of touch with itself. They think they need to hire an outside law firm to figure out what's going on on their own campus. That was surprising to me. And they're spending money instead of cutting spending, right. which was the directive. And not only that, the law firm they hired is the typical Republican establishment law firm that whenever the establishment needs an opinion they want, they go to that law firm. Mm -hmm. and sure enough it's delivered for a price but uh finally finally the the last nail in the coffin on on that procedure was that uh they came back the, the law firm came back and said that they couldn't find any evidence of uh wasteful spending on social justice programming and advancement when right there in committee i was able to point to the president here's a creation of a brand new department that is focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, the social justice programming we're talking about. And this was created since the last time we talked. And somehow it slipped the, the attention of a law firm. Yeah. They ought to demand their money back. Yeah, and, uh, and the other fascinating thing is, uh, from what I could tell, they didn't say it's not taking place, although that's how they tried to frame it. Yeah. They just said it's taking place, but here's our justification for it. <laughs> that's, that's true. And so, so you know, are your colleagues buying what, what, what the presidents of the universities are selling? Well, unfortunately, on JFAC, there's there's already a large number of legislators that are predisposed to buy that because um, we're told time and time again by the media and by the education establishment, there's nothing to see here. I think the, the State Board of Education president said, you're chasing ghosts. When um, I'm getting more and more examples of this going on, I myself, just started going through the, the website at BSU, looking at their departments and their mission statements. And I'm finding it all over the place. You don't find that, oh, we teach critical race theory. You find the coded language they use. You know, we're going to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion training for our teachers. Uh, this department, uh, the BUILD program, you know, uh, has a multicultural awareness and we're going to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and uh, social and emotional learning, and, and those types of things. And it's, it's all the practice of CRT. 
I mean, our directive was not to eliminate teaching about CRT or what it is or anything like that, or even to, to avoid teaching about race or anything like that. Ours was, you're not going to use campuses as an activist training ground to create little liberal activists who are going to go out and promote social justice. You're not going to use the campus to promote social justice, but they have all these departments that do exactly that. We even found a new website just today mm -hmm. the, at, at Boise State, and the, the headline was... Uh, social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion events at Boise State. Yeah. And I looked at their was, trio teacher training program, was, and one of the categories is is social justice and, and diversity. And, and then you look at it, and that's one of their conferences. Oh, lo and behold, they're hosting and promoting a conference on training teachers how to be social justice sensitive teachers. They're going to go and, uh, and make that part of their, their curriculum and programming. That's what we're talking about. So, okay. So apparently the 20 members, like excluding maybe two of the members, you <laughs> and Priscilla, are not buying what the yeah. universities are selling. That's right. And Priscilla is representative Priscilla Giddings. Right. She's from District right. 7. She is one of the most stellar legislators I have ever worked with. She's she's super smart. She's an Air Force pilot and uh, uh, an accomplished person all the way around. And it's just a pleasure to have her on. She's going to make a great lieutenant governor, if I may. You, you most certainly may. So, <laughs> so the, so the um, try not to be so political and yeah. focus on policy. Yes, know, but but I but I but um, you're what you're telling me is that, and the people who are watching is that your committee is poised to be ignored by the universities. They told them to go do something. Mm -hmm. The universities refuse to do something and yeah. they're going to let them get away with it. I, I think that's that's the feeling of the committee members, um, especially with the way the questioning went. There was there was no um, no budgetary or policy uh, curiosity there from the from the committee. They there was a lot of kudos and thanks for your good efforts going around, but very little curiosity about how they've followed directives or not. So uh, I, I've had a conversation with um, the House Chairman mm -hmm. of the Budget Committee and the Senate Chairman of the Budget Committee. They give different answers. Um, the um, uh, Representative Youngblood said that um, uh, you know he's not sure that the money's be, uh, for the social justice stuff is coming from the general fund. If it's coming from fees, he says, then it's not uh, something that the legislature should concern itself with. Do you agree with that? Not at all. And the reason why I don't agree with it is the universities are creations of the legislature, you know, that these these are, are public universities. It's public dollars. Yeah. And and public dollars are fungible. You know, yeah. they can be shifted away from the general fund or whatever. And so just to say, well, the source of funding is okay. Well, really, would you would you be comfortable with with hosting a, a department on campus that is pro-life and pro-abstinence? Do we see those on campuses? You don't see anything like that. No. Well, I mean, you you might see you might see a a, a, a small fraction of a percent yeah. dedicated to center right type of activities, and then that's their excuse for doing what they do. Oh, look, we brought um, a conservative professor in to go go speak. At yeah, a and and somehow that's considered balance. And that's balance when, yeah. when I can identify a dozen departments on campus. But the fees shouldn't matter. I mean, because yeah. because if the Department of Fish and Game funded entirely by fees, decided to hold a conference on why 
white people with guns are dangerous. <laughs> yeah, there, there would be hell to pay for There would that, be right? an uproar, and they'd say, this is a state agency. Oh, no, using pay funds, for with thieves. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, pay for with thieves. Well, you know, the, the fees are paid by, by um, the students, and the fees are authorized to be charged by the legislature, right? I mean, that uh, universities can only charge fees because universities exist and right. universities have their have have to operate within the rules so it's really missing the point or maybe dodging the point to say that oh one set of funds is used and another one's not therefore it's all okay now we are in charge of everything that goes on on campus so the other one which i got from senator agenbrod which i get from other legislators as well not mm -hmm. not an unusual thought um but it's this sort of um a finger pointing exercise where it's like oh no um, I'm uh, I'm a, a policy I'm a I'm a budget guy. That's a policy committee issue. Talk to the policy guy, and then the policy people will say, "Oh no, that's not a policy thing. That's a budget thing." Talk to the budget committee people. Yeah, uh, there's there's no separation of budget and policy. Uh, the the, just, the committee desperate the committee chairs desperately want to say this is a budget committee. We only talk about the budget. Well, the budget is paying for whatever the policy is. Is that and, a dodge? Oh, it's absolutely a dodge. And sometimes the, the, the spending is for things that were not even specified in statute. You know, the statutes dictate the policy, but then we have spending for line items that, that were never, never contemplated in the policy committee or the, or the statutes. And so in that case, it absolutely becomes a policy committee as well. And I don't think you can separate the two. I don't think you can say, hey, we're talking about spending, not policy. Well, what are you spending the money on? Spending the money on higher education policy what that what the scope of that entails so what do you want to see happen with the colleges and universities this year and, and i guess the second question is do you think that the house which last year um and in 2020 fought the higher education budget had to be sent back to jfac multiple occasions yeah does that happen this year if the budget comes out with no changes uh based on my perception this year i am i'm less optimistic about having real change happen at universities. Uh, I think a lot of legislators are worried about the next election instead of worried about doing what's right. Our education system, our higher education system is slipping further and further off the rails. They are, you know, there used to be a goal of excellence in education. Now uh, there are so many different things going on on campus. Um, uh, that are deviating from excellence in education and are really fulfilling agendas that I don't see how how is a budget committee this year in election year is going to be able to turn it around. So I'm less than optimistic, but long term, I'm optimistic that we can elect good people and get good change and return to a system of excellent education. What, what kind of things do you think that the legislature should be doing relative to higher education if, if you had the votes to get it done. Well, I would I would seriously like to um, hire administrations who want to focus on education instead of activism. And you know, when we have a hiring process for faculty, when I don't know if viewers know this, but I am an economics professor. I've I've built a career on teaching economics for over 25 years now. And when I applied to universities, um, I, I submitted my, 
my resume, my curriculum vitae. I, I submitted my evidence of teaching excellence that I had teaching reviews I, and my transcripts. And um, many institutions who were concerned about excellence in education asked me to submit a one-page uh, summary of my teaching philosophy, how I approach teaching, to determine um, you know, what, what kind of a teacher I would be. You know, how, how does that fit with their teaching culture? Now, um, uh, candidates at our public universities are not asked necessarily for their teaching philosophy, but they're asked for statements on diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're statements about multiculturalism. And uh, teachers or would-be professors who want to get hired, you tell me this, if they put in there that they haven't focused on that at all, but they focused on, on teaching classical economics and monetary theory to the best of their ability, do you think they're going to get hired? Or is it the one that's going to say, um, we need to focus, you know, whatever the politically correct or acceptable statements are about what the ideal teacher for promoting social activism is. And that's happening here in, in Idaho's public colleges and universities. It's, this it is, is not something that we're talking about taking place in you know, Berkeley or something like that. That's right. And so as long as we have that going on in our hiring process, and as long as we have departments on campus that are spending millions of dollars who are devoted towards promoting uh, social justice and activism, we are, we are missing the mark. It's, it's weird because, um, you know, what, what, watching um, not just uh, college university presidents talk about this, but also uh, Idaho and other uh, national C business CEOs talk about these issues. Um, the, the, the president of um, the CEO of St. Alphonsus Hospital uh, was talking at the Associated Taxpayers meeting in December, mm -hmm. and somebody brought up the question of DEI. We're all interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the CEO of a hospital said, well, you know, we've got to make sure we check the box. You know, you've got to make sure that you hire enough uh, minorities, you know, um, mm -hmm. racial and, and, and gender diversity and all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, my gosh. If I'm having a heart attack yeah. and I look up and, and I'm not going to get the best surgeon, I'm just going to get the person who, who checked the box. <laughs> if you're black and you're the best surgeon, then God bless you. Operate on me. If you're a woman, I don't care. If you're yeah. gay, doesn't matter. If you're the best, you hire the best. But instead, they're actually looking over their shoulders and saying, and maybe we won't hire the best. We're going to hire the person because they they check some box. Yeah, you want when you're when you're sick or a family member sick or a loved one, you want the excellence best. in healthcare, and excellence in healthcare is not is, is not about all these superfluous issues that they're thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion. It's the did they do their studies? Did they you know yeah. do they do they know their medicine and and are they practiced at it and good at it that's that's what the proper that's the thing that's ought to be. disturbing and we and and conservatives you know we we adhere to the idea you shouldn't be judged by the color of your skin or your sexual or your sexual orientation or your gender um it's just are you good at something yeah and yet we're being considered the racist because we that is the the interesting irony of critical race theory Martin Luther King said that uh, you know he had a dream of a world where people would be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. Critical race theory teaches the opposite. That uh, teaches that America is systemically racist somehow, and that you should be viewed first by the color of your skin to determine whether you're part of the aggrieved minority 
who's victimized by an oppressive majority. And uh, it's all supposed to be seen through that lens because it's systemic. And now you're paying for it. You actually pay for that education. Yeah. You pay for, for college professors to declare certain students to be oppressed and others to be oppressors. That's right. And, uh, you know, um, you asked me if there's a future for returning to excellence. The, uh, I'm an economist. The thing that pops into my head is, is competition usually achieves great results. And so the more we can introduce competition into this, um, higher education comes closer to a school choice model than uh, K-12 does. K-12 has virtually no school choice, except that you can choose to go to another district and still have it paid for. But uh, um, maybe if we had more competition out there, you could have schools who, who focused on the excellence of, of understanding engineering and science and English and, and communications. And uh, the, the universities who deviate from that and want to train up activists, yeah, they'll get their customers and whatnot, but the state shouldn't be paying for it. This legislature, uh, which is now grappling with, with higher education, um, certainly I understand that, that they might have constituents, but maybe they're, they're afraid to tackle the University of Idaho. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they're because of their, their uh, that's a regional thing, or Boise State, ISU, I get that. Uh, what I can't understand is okay. So you also have the the um, uh, the health uh, programs that where we pay for graduate slots at University of Utah and University of Washington, and they're open about it. I mean, if you think that Boise State is somewhat shady or University of Idaho or ISU are somewhat shady when it comes to uh, the DEI and social justice programs, you have to fight. It's there. Mm -hmm. um, but, but man, U of I, yeah, University of Utah and the University of Washington are open about they take money from Idahoans for those, uh, those uh, graduate slots and they train them in leftist ideology. Even that budget is not going to be scrutinized by the Idaho legislature. We'll let that go. Yes. Well, uh, unfortunately, a lot is let go. And I think what is forgotten, you know, in tax policy, I talk about the forgotten man that uh, the hardworking families are those that are earning those tax dollars. And that's forgotten. And there's forgotten men and women in higher education, too. And that is, first of all, the taxpayers who are funding all of this and getting less than stellar results. And and the the students and the the parents of the students who are sending their kids away to college, having spent 18 great years trying to raise up good kids with good family values to have those trashed and have families questioned in their classes. I get heartbreaking letters from parents who said that uh, they sent their kid to, to college and they cannot believe that they're being taught that uh, the family is just a social construct and it doesn't achieve good results. And, you know, just, just tearing down family values at every point. And uh, what's a parent to do? You know, that uh, they pay taxpayer dollars to, to help create public universities that can offer a, a good bargain for students, only to see their students uh, um, get, get turned over to a system that wants to teach them that their parents and their country are bad somehow. It, it, it goes even beyond that, I, I would think. Scott Yenner was trying to make a point. I don't think he made it very well. Yeah. Um, uh, talking about uh, uh, women in, in, in careers. Um, like I said, the, the point was a bit lost because of the, the, a few of the words that he chose to describe the situation. But mm -hmm. there seems to be an effort 
by the government, not just here in Idaho, but uh, in every state and in the national government, to um, uh, to downplay the role of families, to downplay yeah. fatherhood and motherhood in favor of careerism. Mm-hmm. Do, do you do you find that to be true as well, or is that maybe I find that it, to be true? Just, maybe yeah. I don't know. I had a concerned parent send me content from their high school kids communication class, communication class, not even a family class or a, or, you know, a, a, a sociology class. It was a communications class and all the examples they used for, for setting up conversations or debates or communication questions um, in the, in the curriculum were about issues that were definitely all slanted one side gun control. Another one was that families uh, are whatever families want to be defined as being. It's not a mom and a dad and kids. It's whatever, you know, anybody that wants to call what they have a family. Well, that's a family. Uh, you know, it should like, be like a, Jim Jones. Yeah. With the, uh, cool, not, not uh, the yeah. Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Jim, Jim <laughs> You're Jones talking Guyana, right. Jim Jones. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and it, it is just that's a family, I guess. Is yeah. Better as yeah. It's just, uh, you know, changing the English language so that the language doesn't mean anything anymore. It can mean whatever people want. But that's They've the d- government that's doing that. That's not, that's not, you know, somebody with a hobby or somebody who formed a church. This is some, this is the government that that's has right. decided to undermine the family. Mm-hmm. And, and they do so systemically. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the liberal activists have been very effective at getting any shred of religion off of campus and out of schools. But um, they've replaced it with, an, with their own religion of sorts. And it's a, it's a religion of, of indoctrination. It's a religion of, uh, of liberalism and, and social justice. And it's, it must be adhered to. And if you don't adhere to it, you must be destroyed. Cancel culture is real. It's it's weird to me that given everything else that's going on and even a low-hanging fruit such as stopping taxpayer funding of Boise Public Radio, which airs national public radio, which is extraordinarily left of center, mm-hmm. and Idaho Public Television, which is also very left of center, I mean, yeah. increasingly so, I mean, we keep talking about, oh, you know, if only Congress would do something about those crazy leftist, you know, broadcast outlets. But we have our own here. Yeah. And you can't get the Idaho legislature to defund those. You know, people like you and I are, are cast as chasing boogeymen that, that don't exist or something like that. Uh, what people don't realize is I'm in higher education. You've been studying this for years. I know what goes on in higher education. You've studied it. You know what's going on. Um people might be surprised to, li- to hear that I listen to NPR every morning. And I know what goes on on NPR. <laughs> and uh, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, it is, it is far left of center. But what I find interesting is that it is, it is such a, an echo chamber on NPR. They think they are mainstream middle of the road. <laughs> when when yeah, they truly do they they do and so they think they are they are providing the unbiased uh, middle of the road uh, discussion and everything they do really goes against conservative values um we're we're not we're not uninformed we're not we're not chasing ghosts we we know what's you know what's there. happening yeah. yeah so switching gears a little bit and, and still on the budget mm-hmm. um there was a lot of noise made last legislative session like a lot of ink was devoted to the lieutenant governor's budget. Yeah. And 
I think $17,000 or whatever, some figure, who cares? Mm-hmm. I find that really fascinating just because where the big money is and where everybody should be screaming for the hills is Medicaid. Yeah. And Medicaid is that it's, I ask people all the time, what's, what's the biggest government program? And they say, oh, well, education, which isn't true. The biggest government program in Idaho is yeah. Medicaid and getting larger. Is anyone doing anything about that? Does anyone want to? You know, complication serves the bureaucracy and serves the growing of government. And uh, you look at our general fund budget, it's about $4.2 billion, but it's going to be closer to $6 billion this year based on all the you know, projections. And uh, you look at that and go, oh, 63% of our general fund is going towards education. That's the lion's share of what we spend money on. But uh, there's a lot more government spending in Idaho than what just comes out of our state general fund. There are dedicated funds, which are fees raised by these organizations or grants that are dedicated to them. And then there's federal spending that goes on. And you're exactly right. The Medicaid budget is is far greater than other budgets. The Medicaid budget actually is larger than our state general fund. If you look at how much is being spent on Medicaid in the state. And um, if you look at the pie charts, when I got here, eight years ago when I got here, the amount of spending done by the federal government in Idaho was about 34% of all government spending. Today, it's getting close to 46%, something like that. We're getting close to the point where the federal government is has a bigger footprint in Idaho than the state government. Then the federal government is fun. We're getting close to where they're funding most of what happens in Idaho in terms of public policy. When we get to that point, are we a state anymore? Or are we a subsidiary of the federal government? You're an administrative unit. All you do is administer whatever the federal government wants. And you're exactly right. If you look at COVID spending and, and American Rescue Plan Act spending, they're dumping billions of dollars into the state. And the state uh, fellow legislators are saying, well, we got to spend our share of it. We got to spend it up. Well, the strings come with it too. And uh, we are becoming more and more dependent on those federal dollars. And how do you maintain your sovereignty as a state, which has constitutional superiority over the federal government when the federal government has financial superiority over you? I don't know how you square those two things. I'm trying to understand also, it's a sort of side note, but there uh-huh. has been a series of House resolutions introduced in the last few days dealing with ARPA funds. Yeah. What is that all about? See, I've never seen that happen before. But uh, sitting in the budget committee, there are lots of plans for spending the ARPA money. Uh, it was interesting, last year, uh, they thought it was a big ask to ask for $50 million for water projects around the state for three or four or five different water projects. This year, gosh, it was something like $300 million is being asked. And it's because ARPA, ARPA funds and investment, uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act uh, money is hanging out there from the federal government too. And usually that comes through the budget committee, but with all this new federal spending, these germane committees, the Judiciary and Rules and the Land and the Ag Committee, they are doing resolutions to try and make policy to kind of force the budget hand of JFAC is what it looks like to me, that if there's a resolution out there that says that we should fund the, this, the helicopter for the state police, then somehow JFAC can't debate whether the helicopter is good or not. The committee already did that. We're just supposed to fund it um, to the right amount. That's bizarre. I think it's, I, it, it's a switch up I haven't seen before, and I think it is uh, designed to get um, 
much of what the governor is asking for in terms of spending up all the dollars, including the surplus, including all these federal dollars, so that, uh, um, you know, when you spend the money, you get a lot of goodwill, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you, you certainly yeah. buy off a lot, a lot of support from different interest groups, for sure. Sure. <laughs> so let me go back a little bit, because I want to understand your philosophy, and I don't want to superimpose my philosophy on yours. I want to know what yours is. Mm -hmm. But theoretically, the legislature, if you had enough conservatives, could vote and say, you know, we don't want to be in the Medicaid business anymore. Yeah. Would that be a good thing if you, if the state were even to talk about something like that? Um, you know, I, I presented an analogy once on the House floor that uh, uh, in some ways we're like a, a teenager in the basement of our parents' house. And we're frustrated that when we come home, they want to, my parents want us to make the bed and, and uh, show up for dinner on time and stop playing video games. So I've had it. I want to, I'm going to leave. And so the teenager says, I I'm out of here and uh, I don't need you guys anymore. I'm, I'm out of here. And by the way, can I borrow the car and right. do you have money for gas? That's, that's what they're, you know, Idaho, you know, a lot of legislators uh, talk like they want to be independent of the federal government, but when push comes to shove, are they actually going to vote that way? I proposed a bill a few years ago that said, you know what? The federal government does not do a lot of spending on our public education in Idaho. It was really not a lot. And so I just proposed a, a bill that modestly weaned us off the federal dollars, just replaced it with state dollars, did not reduce our spending on education one dime, actually had the increases go on, but we took took on a larger share until you we got had the no federal fund. government yeah. out of it. And I called it the Education Freedom Act. And so after about seven years, we wouldn't need any federal dollars. And I think Nebraska might might actually be in that situation. They don't use federal dollars. Hmm. Things have changed in the last couple of years. You don't know what they did with ARPA. So I don't know if I can say that for sure. But imagine the freedom we would have in our education decisions if we didn't have to say, well, will this threaten our federal dollars? Right. Because when I offered to get rid of Common Core, the first question they asked is, well, if we get rid of Common Core, are we going to lose money? Because the federal government threatened to take away Alaska's Title IX money for changing its curriculum. And I'm like, there's, there's no nexus there. And they go, well, federal government threatens that we can't do it. It's amazing to me. There's even that discussion taking place with um, getting rid of same-day voter registration. Yeah. Where Dorothy Moon has a bill, and mm -hmm. she, I think it's a righteous bill. Getting rid of same-day registration, terrible. Uh, I mean, the same-day registration is terrible. Getting rid of it would be great. But the argument was made, oh, if you do that, then you're not going to be compliant with um, some federal edict or federal uh, funding yeah. scheme. And just remember, this was discussion about primary elections. Primary elections are not federal elections. Right. Yeah. It, they are the parties determining who their nominees are. And so if you look at it through that lens, what, what business, no business is it of the federal us. government? We're doing nominations for parties within a state. That, but there's, there's too much of that. And yeah. they even talk about, um, as, a, as an economist, I've, I'm fascinated, infinitely fascinated by um, youth employment. Yeah. And we've taken the federal government's youth employment restrictions and placed them on top of states. Mm -hmm. And so now states have young people who aren't getting into the workforce until they're 18, 19 years old, and they have no skills, and they all want to be making $20 yeah. an hour to start out. Well, uh, as an economist, first of all, minimum wages 
evil. Suck. Yeah. <laughs> they, they create unemployment. They right. create worse working conditions. And so a few years ago, I actually proposed and passed a bill and had it signed. It's law now that if you have a family run business and you have your kids working that business, you're exempt from minimum wage laws. And uh, boy, wouldn't that be great if if we could actually have more kids get involved in in working if they choose to before be they're a, 18. It shouldn't be a family run business. Yeah, I without mean, following all these, these right. stinking federal rules. Why does the federal government get to decide our, our, our laws concerning something as important as our kids. There, there's a restaurant down the road mm -hmm. that has a help wanted sign on the door, can't find people. And meanwhile, there's a 15 year old sitting at home streaming Netflix and playing video games. True. Yeah. And you go, well, why can't, isn't that a match made in heaven? <laughs> it sure is. And you know, I, I don't know about you, but uh, a lot of my more successful friends were a lot like me is that uh, I started working as soon as I could. I worked at when I was 15 years old in the tire store and, and tires, what did tires, you do? I, I mounted tires. You tires. I mounted there. tires. I, I, I learned the whole process, learned how to, you know, uh, change a tire, mount a tire, balance a tire, align a car, shocks, all that stuff. And it's, it's hard work. I didn't know anything different, you know, but, uh, it sure made me want to go to college later on. <laughs> and it made <laughs> yeah, me sure. a better, a better person in that, I learned how to show up on time. I learned how to take orders and uh, and follow orders and and be pleasant and in so, a workplace. So couldn't couldn't the legislature relax those rules and say federal government? I mean, I don't understand. If Washington State, Oregon, California, they passed laws saying we're going to ignore marijuana. Yeah. Laws. Oh, wait. Well, well, look marijuana, at this. Marijuana, it's okay to ignore the federal government on youth employment. No, you we, see what we did when uh, when Biden issued an un unconstitutional order to say we're going to have vaccine mandates for every employer over 100? We followed that for a while yeah. until the Supreme Court finally let us off the hook. But I'm like, we shouldn't have waited for the it's, Supreme Court. Idaho saw that it was unconstitutional. Forget the federal government. You're right. If Colorado can do it for something as trivial as legalizing recreational marijuana, we, we ought to thumb our nose at the federal government for these important things like economics, healthcare, um, important things like protecting unborn babies in our in our state. What could be more noble so where, than where's that? Where's the resolve to do that? It's not there. It's not there. Um, you know, the other day we had a tax conformity bill, and I just pointed out it contradicts our state constitution on the recognition of marriage. I even offered a solution, said, let's write our own tax code so that there's no conflict, no, no doubt about whether we're violating the marriage part of our constitution. We can write tax bills that, that make marriage a moot part of this. And so you could still have whatever people wanted to do in terms of marriage, but the state wasn't going to recognize it either way. And we would have a tax code that would be consistent with our constitution and it wouldn't conflict with the federal government's ideas of taxes. And we could have done both. But since I bring that up, there wasn't a resolve from a majority of my colleagues to say we're going to even honor the state constitution. Does that dynamic give you pause when other ideas come up, like Convention of States, for example? Yeah. I'm supposed to believe that these state legislators who can barely lift a finger to stop federal involvement in education and health care and yeah. family life and tax code are going to go to some convention and preserve and protect and make the constitution better. Yeah. You know, um, 
I, I believe that our Constitution is a divinely inspired document. It, it came about at a time um, where things were just right. We had great leaders who seemed to have been brought up for that very purpose, to be in that place at that time, to have those discussions and come up with a document that has endured, at least to this point, in large part, not perfectly, um, and served us very well. Also, as an economist, I'll point out that our country was created about the time there was a large shift in economic thinking away from mercantilism and government control and, and flawed economic thinking toward more free market and liberty oriented economics, right at the time we're creating a new country. And so um, I believe all those things came together at the same time. That said, I don't see many John Adams or Benjamin Franklin's around today. I don't see leaders across this country who are honoring the constitution the way those leaders would. And are they going to craft changes to our constitution that first of all will be honored, second of all are going to be good? And I, I just don't trust that process. I know what kind of a media circus a convention of states would look like. Can you imagine all those people in the convention and the media circus outside? I picture Chicago 1968 riots outside while they're trying to come up with reasonable constitutional amendments. And we're supposed to expect that that's going to to yield good results when we don't even follow the constitution now? Yeah, I, I, I tell everybody the story of um, when I was invited to a con convention of states meeting in Austin several years ago. And at first it started off, you know, fairly reasonably. It was, I oh, mean, maybe we need a, um, an amendment to uh, balance the budget, maybe a yeah. term limits amendment. Those, you know, on its face without digging into the details, because that's where you really end up. In, in, yeah. The term limits one is the easiest to argue that the, the, the uh, federal spending is another one because balanced budget just means mm -hmm. we'll go raise taxes or we'll figure out some other way to put something off the book so it doesn't get counted. Yeah. We'll always be in an emergency. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so you kind of wonder about that. But then they started talking about things like, well, maybe we should um, amend the Commerce Clause. or Maybe we should clarify the General Welfare Clause. And then some legislator from some state gets up and says, well, you know, all this sounds interesting, but what about Medicaid? Are you going to make sure we keep Medicaid? And yeah, let's answers, make oh, that constitutional. Got to put that in there <laughs> yeah. because there's nothing in there about that. So. And, and by the way, the, the word infringe is a little too strong in our right, Second it, Amendment. It, right. You know, shall yeah. not infringe. Yeah. That's a little too strong. Should, how about should only provide reasonable infringements? Right, exactly. Or, or what, what yeah. about the, the First Amendment? I mean, now you have people that are going out and they're spreading lies about, about yeah. COVID, the misinformation. Yeah. Dr. Fauci says that you should wear seven masks and... You know, Rod Nate gets on the radio and says, I don't believe in masks, and we probably need to censor his speech to make sure he's not allowed yeah. to say that anymore. Yeah. Well, I didn't I didn't anticipate this shifting into a convention of states discussion, but since we're there, uh, I'll also point out, you know, first of all, we're not following the Constitution as it is. What, what do we think an amended Constitution is going to do for us? I don't think we have the right people there there to to make the decisions. And and so I really distrust the process, and what kind of outcomes we'd get out of it. Um, seems to me the answer is very simple. You are the answer to the problem, not you personally. You're part yeah, of that, yeah. but, but legislators who adhere to the Constitution and will say things like, you know, the government has no business doing, the federal government doesn't have the business, the state does, government doesn't have the business do, doing these things, mm -hmm. that gets you back to, 
Um, yeah, I always say that that's 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 being a moderate. You're the the Constitution is dead center, and everything else out from that is is extremism. So if you're mm-hmm. following the the Constitution, that's interesting. Yeah, I like you that. wouldn't have you wouldn't have an issue at all. You know, the the Constitution is an amazing document because it it instead of focused on uh, uh, what kind of of laws we should have, it's we know there is a tendency for governments to always get out of control. So it focused on how are we going to limit government as we also try and protect rights. And it's a genius document because it does what I wouldn't have thought of at the time. And that is that my analogy is if I um, went on vacation for the weekend and I'm leaving my kids at home, I would be tempted to write, yeah, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. I could write a list of all the things they can't do, but I lack the imagination to think of all the bad things that they could do that I should have put on the list. But what our geniuses did with the constitution is limited our government by saying, here's the limited number of things you can do. Anything off that list is out of bounds. That's much more limiting than a list of cannots. So they, they gave a, a, a very narrow list of things they can do. Unfortunately, the power of government always tries to find a way out. It's like, you know, water always finds the downhill, right? And so it's the, the, the power of government is always finding the leaks or the cracks in the system or the way to reinterpret things or just ignore things. And uh, so we've gotten farther and farther away from our, our constitutionally protected government. This state government, however, has a constitution passed in 1890 that says the government's to create a system of schools mm-hmm. that's supposed to be uniform, thorough, uh, thorough. in general. Yeah, the great descriptions for what you'd want to. As I said, if I'm having a heart attack and they wheel me to the hospital, the things that I look for in my hospital are general, uniform, and thorough. I wouldn't yeah. want you know exceptional or or you know the best of the best or yeah or anything like that. I just want want it all to be the same. So that's in the Constitution. Is is that something that that you think should be in the Constitution? Is it something that the state really should be involved in? Well, I swore an oath to uphold it. And so part of my oath is that I need to recognize that it is a constitutional mandate that we have a system of public of common schools. It doesn't mean that we have to fund every bit of education. Um, you know. We can still have private schools. We can still provide ways for parents to choose private school options with public funding and still provide a system of common schools, which are thorough, general, and uniform. Now, um, uh, we haven't gotten close to having an excellent system of education. Let's introduce some competition, still meet that constitutional mandate. And by the way, I'll just point out this, that uh, no disrespect to our constitutional authors in Idaho, but I think they got this one a little bit wrong, although I still need to follow it. Um, general, thorough, and uniform are contradictory. There's no way what is thorough in Madison County is uniform to what is thorough in Ada County. You can't achieve both of those at the same time. But what you can achieve, achieve is thorough, uniform, and general in terms of funding. If you have the funding that is, that is um, you know, equalized and fair across the state in general. And, and then the local districts can decide what is, what is thorough. You can have uniform funding and, and thorough education decided at the local level. That might be better. It also seems as if what we're doing in the schools don't quite, doesn't quite match what was the idea in 1890. I don't think that the, there was a plan for 
or kids to be subjected to a federal grant that teaches <laughs> them that gender is fluid and you know go go talk to your parents about what your pronouns should be yeah and that that's when parents need to step up and that's there by the yeah. way it, 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 that's happening in idaho oh it is happening in idaho and they they tried to do a preschool grant last year at six million dollars for three years in a row six million six million six million and it was uh going to be uh funneled through an organization which had critical race theory and social justice programming in it. Nobody expected that in our schools and we shouldn't start funding new school programs with that in it. Parents, yeah, it's uh, it should be, it's an insult to parents yeah, to, uh, to say that the schools are gonna decide and they know better. Um, I think parents, uh, parents know better. And so the more, more control we can leave in the parents' hands, whether it's funding or participation in school boards or participation in curriculum adoption and review, the better we've covered a lot of stuff and it's getting yeah. late what, what have we missed well gosh how how much longer do you have wayne we could we could <laughs> and, be until, here all night until you are just too tired or desperately need to go to the bathroom and okay. to want to wrap mm. it up it's well up to you i'd be remiss if i if i uh, left out one thing and that is as an economist uh who recognizes that we have seven and a half percent inflation the highest in 40 years going on na na nationwide and nine percent here in the intermountain states um part of our government holds on to funds that aren't needed at the beginning of the year that might be needed at the end and and uh sometimes municipalities uh you know have funds that they're holding on to and the state treasurer is in charge of of holding those uh, being the being the steward of those our law uh, limits the treasurer on investing those to just short-term debt instruments. And uh, last year they gained 1.8% in value, but uh, the inflation was 7.5%. We lost 5%. 5% of $10 billion is like half a million, or sorry, half a billion dollars of purchasing power that was lost in real terms due to inflation. So you have a proposal to fix that. I do. Simple proposal. It's not a mandate. It just says that if the treasurer wants to invest in real assets, we're going to say the real assets you can invest in are gold and silver. Those are the only ones that are listed in the Constitution as, as legal tender that, that a state could use. And so gold and silver are, uh, um, are another option, and they're a hedge against inflation. Um, Every other investment the state can invest in is all short-term debt instruments, which have two risks. It's the inflation risk and also the counterparty risk of whether or not they're going to follow through on paying off those debts. But gold and silver are real assets. They don't have the counterparty risk and they tend to protect us against inflation loss. And uh, it's just giving the treasurer another tool in their toolbox that if they want to choose it, they may choose. They're it. not mandated. She can choose. No mandate at all. So last year you ran into an obstacle. I think the bill passed the House overwhelmingly, gets the Senate and and uh, die, die in committee, if I remember correctly. Well, it never got a hearing well, in the Senate committee. The, it it ended up in that uh, at chairman's drawer with the lock and key on it again. Again, that uh, Senator Lodge again, locked it up in her drawer. And so we ran into that problem again. And in the interim, seven and a half percent inflation. So we had no hedge against it. Uh, I, I cannot tell you how, you know, we could have avoided um, some, some real loss in investment just by having uh, a hearing and a process that let representatives do what representatives are supposed to do. So do you, do you think that maybe this year there's a better chance because the urgency has increased? 
Yeah, and I wasn't even planning on running it this year because I recognized that the political realities of chairmen's and drawers hadn't, hadn't changed. changed. But uh, gosh, it, it offended my economic sensibilities enough. I'm sitting there one day going, dang it, <laughs> this inflation is out of control. And by the way, I believe it's higher than what the what the government's yeah. I mean, you just go through your grocery well, store they, and realize they, it's. I mean, they they leave out the uh, 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 commodities that 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 are likely to skew the numbers high. Oh yeah, we're we're and I think any reasonable family would realize their prices haven't gone up seven percent. They've gone up more like fifteen or twenty percent. It's just crazy time, and uh, so I'm just like I cannot believe we're just letting uh, the real value of our assets go to waste. We ought to have at least one way to check that. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to run the bill again, and I don't care if it's politically stupid or not, but I'm going to give give it every chance to, to have the state away, give the state away to avoid these losses. I don't know if this is an area that you have any expertise in at all, but I'm just going to throw it out there and ask, is there yeah. a place for Bitcoin in that discussion? Um, it's not part of my bill and, and boy, let's, let's get, let's get this gold and silver out there first. And then, I mean, then we can have that discussion. Well, I'm, I'm but, just asking yeah. as, as, from an intellectual standpoint, given the fact that it's a finite amount, not controlled by any government, yeah. decentralized, maybe there's something to be said about, the fact that government just has a tendency to debase their currencies throughout yeah. time. They've always done that. We're doing it here. <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I, I want to punt on that one because well, the, the problem with Bit, the problem with the cryptos is that their, their short history has been very volatile. And so I think people would be very nervous and maybe even very nervous to give authority to a state official to, to dabble in that with their money. And so the, the volatility scares me, but gold and silver have a volatility to them too, but they enjoy a hedge against inflation. And might I say this, maybe we should just give cryptos a little more time till we see their, their oh, test I, of, of, yeah. I, I love gold and silver. The thing that's really interesting yeah. about Bitcoin, and I'll disaggregate from just cryptos in general, is yeah. that it's not owned by a, a government, not owned by a foundation, not owned nope. by a company. You can't knock on the headquarters of Bitcoin and say, hey, I know you only make 20 million, 21 no. million of these, yeah. but can you make you know, 5 million more because we need them? Yeah. And the other really cool thing, just to put a plug in, is that, you can put on the state treasurer's website the public address for the Bitcoin holdings of the state of Idaho, and you'll know what's in there. Exactly. Whereas I have no idea. Even uh, the, the simple discussion about how much reserve funds the state has, we had a legislative budget office document that misstated the amount of the reserves. It was based on what the governor's budget decisions were supposed to be. Yeah. Kind of like the, the Golden Fort Knox. We Maybe yeah. there's gold there. Maybe there's not, but at least there's a wallet address. That's true. And, so, and just a thought. you know, these are discussions that that ought to be open. And man, let's have those discussions. But you really should, because your central thesis is still correct. Yeah, you, we're we're bleeding out money without doing anything. No action is an action. That that action is inflation. There's a real opportunity cost to it. And uh, I'm an economist and just full disclosure here, I don't own gold and silver as investments right now. And, and it's, um, and, I, but I do own Bitcoin. So, oh. <laughs> so it's, it's not a, what is good for thee is not for me. It's right. just that, you know, if the, those options ought to be more open, especially when we've said, you know, we have a narrow list that is only debt instruments. And I cannot believe that, that, uh, and, and if you think, well, they could, the treasurer could just save it as cash. 
Cash is a debt instrument. Yep. It is a Federal Reserve note based on the, the goodwill that you imagine our federal government has to preserve the value of it by not overinflating the money supply. And they haven't done a good they're job. They're not at doing it. a very good no. job, or maybe they're doing the job that they that they're designed <laughs> to do. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's not good for Americans. I mean, if the as as much as you think uh, Bitcoin is imaginary and intangible, the the same is with the Federal Reserve note. Even you might be so. able to pick one up, but its value is at is least on the Bitcoin as I ethereal know, I, I, as Bitcoin. I, I know <laughs> that there's 21 million, or, or can only be 21 million of them, but they can print money into infinity and they are that's what they're doing uh it's, but, it's grotesque and it's wrong and I, people don't understand that you i mean as an yeah. econ, economist as a professor who teaches this stuff it's horrifying that young people have no idea that the government's really yeah you want me hurting. to give you some shocking numbers we have a 30 trillion dollar debt right now 30 trillion dollars and uh these are numbers that are so big your eyes glaze over um 30 that's about 145% of our GDP. In other words, <sighs> we could produce goods and services only to pay off debt for a year and a half. Um, that's a lot of production that we have to do to pay that off. And by the way, that's all of GDP. GDP is not the government's ownership. <laughs> the government doesn't own GDP. GDP is largely private. It's what people have produced during a year. And so to say our national debt is 150% of a country's GDP, just beyond imagination. No country has, has avoided financial collapse who has ever let their debt to GDP ratio get above 100%. No country has ever survived that. We're at 145%. Where do you think we're headed? Yeah, I know it's uh, there's no magic beans here that doesn't prevent us from scary. having the same. Problem. The temptation is, oh, we'll just print more money, print more money that eventually crashes it, it it crashed us in the 1920s that the the bubble was created in the stock market with artificially created reserves the bubble was created in the in the in the 80s in the junk bond market artificially created reserves more modern 2008 2009 housing market bubble artificially created reserves we have a horrible history at it and we have doubled down quadrupled down yeah. on it this last and it's not years. just us. I, I my one of my favorite reads is um, Fiat Money Inflation in France. Believe it or not, great, yeah. great, great little book. Uh, uh -huh. But the same thing has happened throughout history, and the results have always been the same. Yeah. And people who think that uh, somehow it can't happen here, they're they're yeah. I know. Going to learn very. Quickly the Federal Reserve that. is just cranking it out, and there's even a Ducktales video, Ducktales cartoon. It gets it more right than the Federal Reserve is getting it now. <laughs> so, Not surprising. But, yeah, you ought to look that up. <laughs> I will. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because it is yeah. really important legislation. So yeah, it's good that you good that you mentioned that. Yeah, we'll at least give the treasurer some options. Okay. Yeah. Well, gosh, Ron, uh, really always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Welcome anytime, and um, uh, look forward to uh, seeing the rest of this legislative session play out. It's um, you're in the thick of it, so. Sounds good. Well, I, I appreciate your show here. It, it gives the viewers and listeners an opportunity to hear from legislators across the board. And, uh, you know, some of your other discussions are just fascinating. Gives me a little insight into the way some other legislators are thinking. A lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot good. of fun. Well, thanks all of you guys you. For, for listening and watching. And you'll want to tune in to uh, the Steph Lucas program on Friday for a recap of what happened all this week. There's a lot of stuff. <laughs> so if you missed any of it, that's your chance to catch up with uh, Steph and Dustin on, on what all took place. And we'll have uh, House Education Chairman Lance Clow, 7 o'clock 
this coming Tuesday. So you'll want to pay attention to that. Thanks again for watching and we'll talk to you again next time.